And welcome back here on Bleeding Green, Bears, Burgers, and Bearcat Football. I'm Matt Daniel here, your host, and thanks so much for waiting an extra week for this off-season episode of Bleeding Green. You'll hear my chat with Bearcat head coach Rich Wright. That's coming up here in just a few moments. Um, man, you know, it's kind of a fun uh, fun time of year. Heck, we're right around the corner from spring football. Spring practice starts March 27th, the spring game April 22nd. And so uh, that that's fun. There'll of course be more more on that as we get closer and after. We'll, I'll definitely have some coverage about the game and and uh, kind of who who stands out and things. That's always kind of fun, interesting. You know, there's two points in the off season that I always look forward to: one signing day, and the other's the spring game. And so we've we're almost to the second one of those here in just a little over a month or so. To that, the weather is. I don't know. Depending on what day it is, it's it starts to uh, starts to get a little bit warmer. If if you're listening to this on on Thursday, the 16th of March, we had a little bit of sunshine yesterday. Still still windy, still breezy, but uh, hey, I'll take what we can get this time of year. And so I'm, I'm sure third winter is coming up again at some point. But it is. Uh, I love that. I love this time of year as things start to green up and and uh, I mean I love fall, love football season, but uh, it's just kind of nice. Man, seems like we've had a lot of dreary weather, and it certainly doesn't help seasonal depression and other things. And so, I'm just excited to get some sunshine, maybe get outside and do something. So, um, one thing though that I do want to talk about, kind of something near and, and dear to my heart, and the really the heart to to uh, Bearcat Nation is is uh, former Bearcat offensive coordinator Coach Bart Tatum, who of course fathered to to Alec. Who you know have had on the podcast Bearcat football player and Miles a Bearcat receiver as well, and um, he uh, here a few years ago was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease and actually is at a point where he cannot work. And so I shared via social media on the the Twitter page and in the Facebook group page a link last week to a GoFundMe account that the family has set up to kind of help. He is requiring around the clock care now. He can no longer work, and so if there's something you can do to to help uh, one of our own, you know, a member of the of the Bearcat uh, family, absolutely, and uh, you know, part of that Mel Churchma coaching tree. So, any anything you can do for Coach Tatum and his family, there, there uh, definitely needs some help to kind of set all of that stuff up and, and and take care of him and things. As definitely a rough spot to be in. So, our you know, our hearts, uh, my hearts, and my my family's hearts go out to to the Tatum family and and definitely in our thoughts and in prayers and, and send all, you know, kind of positive vibes and everything else we can to them. Any, anything you can do will certainly be helpful. I'll, I'll be resharing those links in the next few days on the, uh, you know, on social media as well. But you can go back and find them, um, you know, on my timelines as well, if you, if you would do that, but anything you can do, there's no amount too small. The family would certainly appreciate it. And definitely, uh, you know, if, if you can help uh, one of our own, would certainly uh, certainly appreciate that and on that note i'm going to take a quick time out we'll come right back you'll hear my chat with coach rich wright that's next you're on bleeding green
Welcome in here on Bleeding Green, joined by the head coach of the Northwest Missouri State University Bearcats, Rich Wright. And uh, coach, hey, you know, I know we've been wanting to do this for a while. Thanks so much for making some time for me and uh, and coming on uh, as always. I appreciate it. Absolutely. It's great to be, be here with you. Well, let's, you know, let, let's kind of dig in and talk about you. I know you're a New York guy, Hamilton, New York. About the only thing I know about that is that's where Colgate is. Tell me, yep. you know, tell me about Hamilton and, and tell me about your, uh, you know, growing up in New York. Um, yeah, you know, uh, grew up, um, all my family, everybody's from, from that area, uh, all from about two or three counties in upstate New York and, uh, grew up my entire, you know, childhood there. Um, graduated from Hamilton Central High School. Um, really liked uh, growing up. I really loved uh, football and hockey. You know, those were kind of my two sports and baseball. And so, uh, pretty typical childhood as far as that's concerned. And, and so, sports were a big part of that. So, you, so you kind of played all of them growing up. Did you know? I mean, did you like every kid? You know, have dreams of you know playing in the NFL or playing in the NHL or what? What was your favorite sport growing up? Yeah, it was it was always football. Um, my my dad and grandfather were were huge football fans, and huge New York Giants fans. And you know, it's a, it's ironic living out here in the Midwest. So many things, uh, you know, I, I guess until the Chiefs got good, has always been college based. You know, but out there, it's uh, you know, pro football kind of rules as being king. So, I grew up wanting to be a, a New York Giant, and uh, every Halloween. I was either a pro football player, a New York Giant football player, or I was uh, um, a, a New York Giant coach and just would alternate between the two. And I had an awesome experience. You know, um, my mom worked at Colgate University for, shoot, 30-some years in in the admissions department. And so I uh, had a great opportunity to be around those guys. Um, from the time I was a little kid, I had a several uh kids in my in my classes whose dads were football coaches and you know obviously always gravitated over towards uh uh Colgate practice when I was young uh we would shag balls for for the kickers we we would do whatever they'd let us do so a uh, guy by the name of uh Fred Dunlap was the head football coach there at the time and you know in in my area he was a legend um you know he was he established the program, really got it rolling. Um, tremendous person, and was was always probably the the first um, you know outside of my family, the first mentor I ever really looked up to. And he was always very kind to me, and um, you know would would let me be in the complex, and I'd go sit in on meetings as I started to get older and stuff like that. Back then, honestly, uh, you know when they say cutting film, it was literally splicing film. It was on sixteen millimeter and. You know, that kind of dates me a little bit, but that's exactly what it was. And so I'd go sit in with different coaches uh, a lot of times in the spring and just start to pick their brains or get information. Uh, I would I'd go to the library and try and digest every football book there was because there was no such thing as the Internet. And, uh, yeah, that's kind of me. So when did it change from, you know, wanting to play in the NFL to kind of wanting to be a coach? It sounds like that started maybe earlier than some people. Yeah. You know, I was from the time I was little, um, you know, I have books dating back to the mid seventies. You used to be able to order books at your elementary schools and everybody was reading things that were, um, you know, you know, Huckleberry Finn or whatever. Um, you know, I was, I was pulling books on coaching. 
you know, they had these, I can remember them. They were tiny little paperback books and they'd have plays in them. And then I draw up my own, um, gosh, I'm really going to date myself. Uh, you know, I'd set up, you know, everybody back then had an electric football game, so I didn't like the way the players moved. So I would start, you know, putting out formations and defenses and move them on my own because that was pretty much uh happenstance as to how those dudes were going to move when you turn the buzzer on. And, and, you know, it's just, it's, it's always been a huge part of my life. And, you know, I was the uh, tallest kid in my class in fifth grade. And by the time I was a senior, I was no longer there and, and kind of had an understanding that, uh, you know, my, my livelihood wasn't going to be spent in the NFL. So, uh, you know, just I, I, I loved every component of the game and just wanted to continue to learn. And, uh, you know, that's what really how it all started. Well, I mean, you know, we all know you as the defensive guru. Did Was defense always something you were really interested in? Did you gravitate more to one side of the ball? You know, no, not really, uh, because, you know, I just wanted to learn it all. And, you know, the interesting thing about my career is, is I've coached about every position, position that there is to coach on a college football field. And, um, you know, I think it's always given me a different perspective as far as, you know, what people are trying to do on either side of the ball and really feel like that helped me. Uh, I think it also helped me in terms of, of being a teacher, you know, cause, you know, it's, um, I don't care whether you're, you know, a high school teacher or a professor, you know, kind of once you get your syllabus and once you get your framework, you, you kind of get yourself into a routine and it becomes pretty easy. Um, you know, fortunately for me, and I didn't necessarily always think so. So at the time, uh, I think people saw that I was a pretty good teacher. So they felt like I could learn and, and change positions and do stuff like that. But it always, kept me on my toes. It always, you know, made for, uh, an opportunity to, to learn and grow in the game in totality. Well, you're speaking of coaching. I mean, your first opportunity was, was at Cortland state out of New York. Talk uh, about that and kind of how that opportunity came about. Well, I was a terrible football player and, uh, just very, very average. And, and so, you know, uh, took an injury and, you know, kind of knew what was, what was coming beyond that. And so, um, went in and, and talked to their staff and, and said, Hey, I'd, I'd like to make the transition into coaching. And, you know, the great thing about this profession is, uh, they have a lot of needs, but not a lot of pay. <laughs> so, uh, I jumped in feet first and, and worked there. Um, and it was, it was ironic, uh, went down to a, a national football coaches convention in Atlanta, Georgia. And that's where the whole transition took place. Met a guy by the name of Jim Krieger. And I was the moron that uh, had a PE degree without a teaching endorsement. And at that time, you, you couldn't even fathom getting a graduate assistantship if you couldn't teach in their HEPR department. And so uh, visited with Coach Krieger for a couple days. And he said, look, um, I'm going to give you basically a graduate assistantship to get your teaching certificate but you've got to come to Blair, Nebraska to do it. And, uh, I said, okay. And the more we talked, the more excited I got. And so went home from that convention and, uh, went to my house and 
sat down with my mom and I said, I'm moving to Blair, Nebraska. And she thought I was crazy. She said, Rich, what are you doing? Um, we're not, we're not going to help you financially. <laughs> you're going to do this. You're going to do this on your own. So I loaded everything I had up and, uh, never been west of the Mississippi river one day in my life and moved lock, stock and barrel to Blair, Nebraska, which is about 30 minutes North of Omaha. And there I, uh, you know, the guy that was the head coach at the time was a guy by the name of Leo McKillop and Leo had spent a number of years in the, in the CFL. And so got to learn from him and the following season, coach Krieger took over as the head football coach and, you know, it's just, I, I've been blessed. I've had a lot of good people that have looked out for me. Coach Krieger being, you know, um, to the forefront of that. Um, you know, he took care of me like a son because when I said there's nobody uh, remotely close to, to me for, in terms of family, um, you know, he was that. You know, so for two years, uh, I was at his house for Thanksgiving, um, you know, was at his house one Christmas. Um, I mean, I was a long ways away from home and, you know, he was, he was a great mentor, but he was also a, a great person and really took an active interest in me. So it took me a year and a half, almost two years to finish that up and had, a, wanted to go be a GA someplace. Um, he told me originally that it was only going to take a year, but I learned very quickly when you go to a private school that not all your credits transfer. So to get all, to jump all through the hoops that I had to at Dana, um, took me uh, almost two. And in the spring, I started looking for graduate assistant jobs. And, uh, there were three that I was interested in. Um, there was South Dakota state, which at the time was division two. There was Nebraska Kearney and there was Northwest Missouri state. And at Northwest, um, when I went to the convention that year before I was ready to, to be done coach. And once again, coach Krieger made for my way down and, uh, took me along and didn't have to, but I met a couple guys that used to be in the league and they were old Nebraska Wesleyan coaches and they were brand new at Northwest Missouri state. They'd got there in the fall of 90, 90 would have been 94. And this would have been spring of 95. And, uh, one's name was Jim Sabota and the other one's name was Scott Boswick and coach Krieger had a good relationship with both. And so that spring I went and visited all three schools and Northwest was obviously <laughs> the worst of the three in terms of record because South Dakota state was pretty good. Nebraska Kearney was pretty good and Northwest Missouri state had just gone 0 and 11, but there was a level of comfort. There was a level of, uh, um, foresight, I guess, or luck, however you want to say it, but I got around these guys. I got around, you know, I met coach Churchma, uh, Bart Tatum at the time, John Gustafson, and then obviously Jim and Scott, who I'd met at the convention. And, and I just, I just had a sense that there was going to be something special that was going to happen here. And I, I couldn't pinpoint it or tell you what it was, but it, there was just something. And, and I, I decided it was Northwest was where I was going to go. And, um, so I moved lock, stock and barrel to Maryville, Missouri, and the next phase began. So what, uh, was there, a initially, you know, when you go from New York to Blair, Nebraska, was there kind of a culture shock at all? 
or was it kind of what you expected or you just roll with the punches or? Um, you know, it's not as much and everybody asked that question. And, and so, you know, the funny part about coming from New York is I say I'm from New York and everybody thinks I'm from some huge city. Uh, I'm from a community of 3000 people. Most of New York is trees and pastures and mountains. Um, you know, the dairy industry is huge up around where I live. And so in terms of, in terms of small town, in terms of, um, you know, people that are really open and nice, there, there wasn't, there wasn't a shift for me there at all. Um, gee, you know, topography wise, it was a lot different. I can remember driving out here for the first time and it was like, it, it probably the best sense I can give it give to you on it is we had fields um but they're all tree lined and there there's hills and every town is like in a valley but when i came out here it was like looking out at the ocean I, you know just as far as you could see in any direction you just saw corner beans and so that had me pretty perplexed but um otherwise no it, it was um it was i was used to small town life i was used to small communities tight-knit people those were all things that were kind of old hat to me. Well, obviously it was a long drive. I, I got to ask, you know, what that's, you know, what, 90, 91, 92, what, uh, what were you listening? what did you listen to on the radio? How did you, uh, how did you pass the time on that drive? Whatever I could pick up on the radio. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it was at that time it, I'm, I'm still a classic rock guy. So it was a lot of classic rock, but, uh, I, I, in the last, uh, 20 some years, I've gained a pretty good affinity for, uh, country music so i i do remember that the first time i went out and uh i was um went into an establishment you know 80 percent of the music being played in blair was was country country music and i was like wow and everybody was into it so i mean i had a couple country tunes i i liked but not to the degree with which they had it <laughs> well to quote one of my favorite movies uh the, the Blues Brothers, you know, we have both kinds of music, country and Western. So, yeah, we got both and kinds Western. of Western, yep, yeah. that's exactly what it was. <laughs> so, so you, you go to Northwest. What, uh, what, what positions did you end up coaching when you came to Northwest? So, well, I was here. I was, I was the tight ends coach, and I also helped with the tackles. So that kind of gives you a little bit of a glimpse into I – was, I was on the offensive side. At Dana, one year I coached the linebackers, and the second year I coached the receivers. And so I kind of had a, a blend of, of things that, that I had done. So, um, and worked with the defensive line as well at Dana. So it, it, it was kind of natural for me. I uh, learned a lot, you know, um, there's a lot that the tight ends have to do in the passing game. So working with coach Sabota was phenomenal. Bart Tatum was the offensive line coach at the time. And, you know, so when in the, in the run periods, I, you know, he would give me the tight ends and the tackles because a lot of the combo blocks are the same things. And so it just helped me grow tremendously. What were the facilities like? You know, I've heard stories of, you know, Coach T and the guys when they, when they got on <laughs> campus. I mean, obviously they weren't, you know, what were your thoughts there? I mean, were you in the, in the trailer park, I'm guessing? Uh, yeah, the trailer park doesn't, I, the trailer park now looks like Taj Mahal compared to the way it looked before, but I think I was just appreciate appreciative that, and I don't even, I gosh, I can't remember the name of the hall that they were in 
their first year here or their first semester because the the front end of Lampkin hadn't been built. And so when I actually got here, they were in all brand new offices, which is where my office still sits today. And, um, you know, so it was, it was okay. Uh, we each had our own little desk. We had to go to Walmart to buy a file cabinet. So I spent $25 on a black filing cabinet. I remember that vividly. Um, and you know, shoot, computers weren't what computers are now. And so all of our information, we stored in files. So I learned how to be organized in a hurry. <laughs> well, I mean, we all know, you know, 95, 96, there's, you know, a lot of JUCO guys that end up, you know, kind of help building, build that culture in the 96 season, obviously. So, um, you know, so kind of key with, you know, with Greg Teal and, and a bunch of those guys, but what did you kind of see in the two years? I mean, what was, you know, the, obviously that was kind of at the beginning of the, of the turnaround. What right. did, what did you see in experience? I think the, I think the biggest thing is, you know, coming off that, and, and I wasn't here for it, but coming off that 94 year, you know, new staff and they obviously cleaned house. And when I got here, you could see that. But what they, the thing that they did is rather than worrying about winning a game or two, they preserved the red shirts for the vast majority of those kids that they recruited initially. And I think that paid huge dividends the next four years, um, which allowed us to make the run. And we did have a core of, of JC kids. We had, Oh, I'm going to leave somebody off. So I hate doing this, but you had, I know Mark's survey was here, the receiver. You know, you had Malcolm LeBlanc, you had Kenny Gordon, um, you had Ambrose Moreland, uh, Andy Hoggett, uh, Ezra Worley, um, just to, and, and like I said, I'm sure, I'm sure I forgot a couple, but they kind of blended in with your Kirk Larson's and Matt Udy's and Greg Teal's. Uh, Jesse Haynes was a kid that was, had been away, but he had still been here and we got him back after the 95 season. So it was just a, it was the right blend. They didn't wholesale go into transfers, but yet they had kids. Um, they did a great job of selling and recruiting high school kids that they were going to get an opportunity. And so I think for us in 95, and, and Coach T would probably have a better perspective than a, a young GA that actually had hair at that point. But, you know, it was, they came off of 0 and 11, and we lost our first two non con games. We played against Mankato. And we played against South Dakota State. And then a really big, we start, we won a couple games, and a big pivotal moment was we beat Central here. And it was, um, I don't remember the exact bet, but it was, I, if memory serves, if we won three in a row, the staff was going to jump in the pond, in Colden Pond, as a matter of fact. And we beat Central at home. And at that time, they were they were one of the halves, and so we all ran over after the game and jumped in Colden Pond, and that was uh, that was the picture on the cover of the Maryville Daily Forum the next day. And so it kind of gave us a sense that we belonged. And I think the other game that was pivotal for us was we played against Pittsburgh State at Pitt, and they probably didn't think we were very good, but you know, shoot, we battled with them, and it was a I won't tell you the score, but it was within a touchdown. And uh, I think that gave us a sense that we belonged and we could compete. And then transition into 96, where a lot of those young guys got an opportunity to play. 
and had a good mix of older kids and younger kids. And, and, and that's where it really all began. Well, and then, you know, obviously your, your GA, um, you know, graduate assistantship kind of comes to an end and, and it's on to other things. I mean, was there a sense of, you know, and I know I've heard you talk about it before, but it seems like there was a sense of, um, man, if I ever get an opportunity to come back here, you know, this is a place I would love to love to be. Yeah. One of probably my best friend in the world is a guy by the name of Brian Schwartz and Brian and I were GAs here for two years together. And I can remember sitting in that back part of, of the GA office and, hoping, <laughs> hoping that one of these guys was going to leave. And could we ever get on staff and, and could we be at Northwest and how cool would it be to someday come back here and be the head football coach? And gosh, probably can't even dream that big because, you know, it's different now. I, I mean, it's, it's funny because I've got a kid that uh, that's going to leave this year. And most of the GAs in my tenure, because of our, because of our success land at division two, um, shoot, that wasn't the case back in 95 and 96. I mean, we were, most of us got small college jobs and, and, and had to try and work our way back to this place. But, uh, you know, Coach T, uh, especially after the 96 season and, and then those next couple of years became a pretty hot commodity. And, you know, where are we going to have a chance at Northwest? Are we going to get to go with Coach T? What does Coach T think of us? You know, so it was, uh, it was a big, uh, uh, topic of discussion back in the trailer court at that time. Well, and also another pretty big moment too is is you met Sarah, your wife. Um, yep. And did I did I hear this story right that you uh, you proposed at a Bearcat game? Oh, I didn't propose. Bobby Bearcat. Oh, did. Bobby Bearcat. So if you're gonna did. get okay. the story if you're gonna get the story right. So John Yates was the cheerleading coach at the time, and I was trying to figure out a clever way to do that, and. Uh, my buddy Schwartz was knee deep in it with me because he he was good friends with John and they were going to try and get me uh, they're going to try and get me on the field, but it was a playoff game uh, because the next year I was coaching up at Dakota State uh, University in Madison, South Dakota, and uh, so I came back down for the playoff game because our season had ended. Well, in an NCAA playoff game, you know you don't control the stadium; the NCAA does. So. Um, at halftime of the game, and if my, you asked my wife, she said I was acting like an idiot all day, but uh, it was because I was nervous. And so uh, we got to halftime. They pulled her out onto the track, and Bobby got down on one knee. Bobby pulled her on the track. As a matter of fact, he got down on one knee and proposed. And I was, I was uh, well, he took a knee and opened the, the box. And so that's how that story came off. Awesome. Awesome. Well, you mentioned Dakota State. So after Northwest, you have stops at Dakota State, Central Methodist, William Penn. Anything kind of, I mean, is that just you kind of cutting your teeth and developing your, um, you know, your your skill set and things as as a coach in those stops? Well, you know, um, it, it probably wouldn't have had to be as many steps as it was, but my first job, so we had two former GAs from Northwest that were both up at Dakota State. Uh, one by the name of Kyle Achterhoff and the other one by the name of Mark Bergen. And so they they helped lure me up to Dakota State. And the one thing you had to do back then, you better be prepared to wear a lot of hats. So I was a dorm director. Uh, I had a really nice apartment, but I was a dorm director. I lived in the bottom floor of a dorm. 
And um, I also was the strength coach and the defensive line coach. And so um, as we went through that first season and, you know, started to go through the second and was getting a little closer to being married and, and Sarah really didn't want to live in a dorm room. So that was the, uh, the prime motivating factor to head down to Central Methodist. Uh, was only there for a season. Um, Schwartz had a contact at Central Methodist, and that took me down there. And from there, uh, at the end of the season, he got fired. And so I uh, worked that spring uh, for the new head coach, and there was a guy by the name of Tom Shea who had a ton of success at Peru State, and he was kind of connected with Sabota and Bostwick and Coach Krieger, and he was going to go to William Penn and be the head coach. Um, so it just, I, I wasn't sure what my, what my time was going to be at, uh, at Central Methodist. So I jumped ship and went to, um, William Penn and was there for a season. And after the season, um, started talking to a guy by the name of Todd Sturdy and Brian Schwartz. Schwartz is in a lot of these stories, by the way, uh, was coaching arena football for the Quad City Steamwheelers at the time. And uh, he introduced me to Sturdy, and we got talking, and he needed a defensive coordinator because he lost his. And, you know, the other stops weren't great programs. They were guys that had visions and trying to build, and I learned at each one of those stops. But St. Ambrose was a little different. Um, They had a decent program. They were pretty good. And when I landed there, I was there for four years and extremely happy. Um, we were in the playoffs every year I was there. Um, we made a couple really good runs and, um, loved working for Todd and really liked the quad cities. And, you know, at that point, that's, uh, after four seasons there, that's when Scott actually called me to come down and talk to him a little bit about what we were doing defensively. And I spent a couple days down here and it just so happened that for the first time since coach T had been coaching, uh, he was going to lose a couple guys. And so um, at that point uh, was the first time that any of the full-time guys had left. So John Gustafson had decided to get out of coaching and uh, Jim Sabota had gone to UCLA. So they hired uh, two former GAs by the name of Adam Doral and Rich Wright and uh, been here ever since. Well, and I, you know, you mentioned you coached the tackles and tight ends. I mean, that's when AD was on the team. Did you guys start to form kind of a relationship back then in 95 yeah i always had a good i always had a good relationship with ad um you know it was i was a ga when he was a player so we were pretty close in age and uh you know it was uh we we always kept in touch he he had kind of bounced like i had to different places and and been (laughs) been at some uh better ones and been at some worse ones and so uh we were just both really excited for the opportunity to get back here, but there was, yeah, there was a, a big time familiarity. So you come in, obviously, you know, we you know some of the relationships you, you developed of co- you know, coaching defensive linemen and, and special teams and, and Dave Tollefson being one of them, kind of a probably one mm-hmm. a of all of those guys talk about, you know, how, how did that relationship with you and him start and how, how did it just kind of click between the two of you? I'll never forget. So, um, you know, and this was the last time, well, thank God I've never had to do it again, but, uh, you know, at that point, 
you know, coming from the Quad Cities to Maryville, um, <clears throat> they didn't have much of a, a moving budget, let's put it that way. And so I looked into movers coming here, um, and that was going to be out of the question. My wife was, um, was at that time, she'd have been uh, June, July, August, she'd have been seven months pregnant, or excuse me, April, June, July. She, yeah, she was seven months pregnant because Grace was born on the 2nd of, of July, and they needed me down here for spring ball. So I moved in with Scott. And I lived with Scott Boswick in his basement. Um, and, and Scott, you know, like Jim, Jim Krieger for me was, a, was like a dad, you know, cause still I, when I was GA here, he was the one that always had us over. He was the only, he was the one that always, you know, had us included. And there wasn't even a question when I came down for spring practice in March, uh, I was going to live with him. So I ran the weight room and that's what I was the first few years. I was a strength guy as well as the D-line guy in the special teams. And, you know, he, uh, I stayed with him throughout the spring. We got to, uh, we got to June and my wife still hadn't sold our house and we were getting ready to have a baby. So AD, uh, took over the weight room for the month of June for me. And so we had Grace on the second and I think a week later we moved here. So getting back to my long story, uh, my moving expenses weren't great, so we came in a U-Haul, which was the last time my wife said we were ever moving in a U-Haul. <laughs> but we got here, and we, found, we I found a house. It was a brand-new house. It was actually built by the Votech School. And uh, the staff was there, and they helped me unload. And I'll get to the Dave part. So we no sooner unload, and there's a knock on my front door. And here's this kid in a basketball jersey. And he said, Coach Wright? And I said, yep. And, uh, you know, that's where the relationship started. He was the first, he was the first player, um, to come to my house. And, uh, we've had a phenomenal relationship ever since, you know, he introduced himself and, and we talked for quite a while and he and I have always been close. So, well, you know, talk about, I mean, we're kind of jumping ahead a little bit, so we'll maybe jump around a little bit. I mean, you got to you know, go to the Super Bowl and, you know, Dave plays for your, you know, your favorite team, the Giants. I mean, those, those have to be some pretty, some pretty special memories. Oh, it was phenomenal. Um, you know, and I'll, I'll backfill and move forward for you, but it was, um, Dave and I were tight. Um, you know, his, his junior year, you know, he, he was kind of still had a little bit of that junior college mentality, um, you know, and it was a lot of, it was a lot of trust that had to be built. Um, I think he saw that I was helping him become better. I really challenged him in the weight room to push himself and, and did really built his body up into his senior year. And at that time in his junior year, we had another guy that was a pretty good transfer by the name of Steve Williams that played here. And, and Steve was kind of the, the quote unquote guy going into the senior year and without getting too far in the weeds and that, you know, Dave was the one that, that just had the transformational year his senior year. And, uh, you know, once we got his body where it needed to be, you know, there was a lot of interest from the NFL. And I can remember, um, on, on the later rounds, Dave was out fishing, uh, with a buddy of his, cause he didn't want to be anywhere around a TV or anything like that. And he was, he loved to fish. And, uh, 
so he got the call from the Green Bay Packers um, that he was going to be selected. And uh, when he was sitting in a boat with one of his buddies, fast forward, he went from Green Bay. He went and played in the, the Europe League for a little bit, NFL Europe for a while, right after that season, and um, ended up with the Giants. And you, you're right. You want to talk about a dream come true. I mean, I can remember my dad taking me to my first Giants game. It was mid-November, I want to say the 17th, it was 1977, and I watched Roger Staubach take the Cowboys down and Raphael Septian kick the field goal. But I can remember walking in the Meadowlands the first time, and it was just like, holy cow. Um, and so to watch one of my guys that I coached um, play in Giants Stadium, because before I went went to the Super Bowl, um, and I am jumping around a little bit now, but uh, they played on New Year's Day Eve um, against the Cowboys in Giant Stadium, and they had to win to get in. And uh, this was in, during his second Super Bowl stint. So he had me on the field. Um, you know, we had a great time, and a few weeks later, I ended up going to the Super Bowl, and it was pretty surreal. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's amazing. Well, well, I'm going to jump around again because I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to go back a little bit. So, talk about from so so you come in '04. Obviously, you you had you know obviously you'd had contact and things with with Scott and and but what was I don't know what were the biggest differences of of coming into you know coming onto campus seeing seeing the program seeing everything besides you know Rick and Broad had become I think Bearcat Stadium at that point of the renovations and um, obviously there's two national titles by that point what what was the, what were the differences that you noticed between when I was a graduate assistant and when I had come back yeah is that what you're asking? Yes. You know, honestly, and, and I always stayed connected to this, you know, so I was always here, you know, until I got to Ambrose, you know, the teams I was on were never in the playoffs. So, I mean, I was always back for games and stuff. Once I got to Ambrose, I wasn't able to do that because we were playing ourselves. Um, but it was, um, you know, so I saw a little bit of the development that happened, but it was, it, it, I mean, obviously, it was night and day. The home side of the stadium was built in 03. You, it, I laugh about the old replay board, but y'all had a replay board. I thought that was unbelievable. It was just, it was such a far cry from what we had here, you know, in the early years. Um, the facilities were great. Um, you know, the the notoriety, the the um, where Bearcat football was from where I coached here the last time was on a completely different trajectory and so it was it was great to walk into um the one thing that i felt like that that we kind of helped establish is is adam and i understood the culture um we understood because we were kind of in on the ground floor of what the guys were like when we were here and and there was a toughness and there was a hunger, and and I've watched this happen over the years here in different runs that we've been able to make, but it takes a group of that to kind of reestablish. Um, it's really easy when you're winning and, and having the success for younger guys to kind of ride on the coattails of the guys that are doing it, if that makes sense. And, you know, 
I think if there's one thing that I, I did a pretty good job of when I came in is, and, and I was fortunate because I had the weight room, uh, we were going to build toughness again. And so that's what we set out to do. And I think if you talk to any of those guys in 04, 05, 06, um, in that time frame, they would, they would align with, with what I'm describing. I mean, it was, it was extremely regimented. Um, it was very different than what they were used to. It was getting pushed in there every day. Um, but I was going to build the mental toughness side of things because I felt like coming off of that 98, 99, there, there was a little bit of a lull and that's what we needed. So, you know, obviously, you know, Oh four is coach T says one of the, you know, great teams that maybe didn't, didn't make a run and had a great, you know, uh-huh. other than the two losses to, to pit, obviously Oh five with the road dogs, how, you know, how important, I don't know, kind of take me through, through a five and how, you know, obviously there's ups and downs of that season. I think that's why as fans remember it so fondly because, you know, there's not a whole lot of times now where we get to be the underdogs, I guess at Northwest. And that's, you know, that's, that's always a fun thing, but, you know, just barely getting in the playoffs, winning the, winning the four in the road, um, in the, in the playoffs to, to get to the national championship. I mean, what, what in those first couple of seasons helped set the tone? Was it kind of bringing that toughness back of then, you know, oh six, seven, eight, nine, you know, making it five, making five straight years to the national championship? I, I do think the discipline and the toughness that that showed up in oh four was important. I mean, we lost we lost two quarterbacks down the stretch. You know, we obviously lost Josh to the hip injury. I believe it was against Missouri Western, and um, then lost um, Matthews later on in the season and you know there was but they had they had start to started to feel like we were ascending and they i think they saw the dividends and what we were doing in the off season so that off season between 04 and 05 was intense i mean you know 04 i was broken up just because i didn't get back here until july um that year in 05 it was on and it started in january and we pushed the envelope as hard as we possibly could. And, and again, we weren't the most talented team in the world, but we blended well together. And over the course of the season, you know, we just, um, I remember that last regular season game against Southwest Baptist and, and, you know, were we going to get in? Weren't we going to get in? What was going to happen? And they let us in and, you know, we, we went on a run and it was, we had gotten beat, um, we gotten beat by Washburn at home and that didn't set very well with anybody. So, uh, you know, we, we, the first week we had to go down to Angelo state and we got to win there. And then we came back and got after Washburn and then we turned around and beat Pitt at Pitt after getting train wrecked. I don't know if you remember, we, we played at Arrowhead that year and got beat probably as good as we've gotten beaten a long time by Pittsburgh state had a lot of injuries in the regular season. And I can remember walking off that field in Arrowhead and, and nobody felt good about themselves. So we were able to get down to Pitt and beat Pitt and then got in a whale of a football game against North Alabama. It's, 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 it, that's so neat just because, you know, we were literally in Florence, Alabama for the semifinals and had to turn around and go back the next week for the national championship. So it's just pretty cool memory and to watch how those kids just kept finding a way. And, uh, you know, funny, I was playing, I had two backup 
defensive linemen uh, that were both offensive linemen. Uh, one was Tom Pestock, as a matter of fact. And so, you know, we were to say we were the Band-Aid Brigade would be a, probably an understatement, but those kids just refused to, to die. And, uh, you know, we played Grand Valley to a whale of a football game and had an opportunity to win it at the end. Yeah. Well, in 06, the bounce back and, you know, a great season. There's a couple of close games in there, but, but for the most part, really, uh, you know, really, really putting, putting a hurting on, on guys. A couple of games that I want to talk about specifically 06, 07 in, in the playoffs was against Shadron State. Since you're on the, you know, obviously defensive side of the ball and uh, uh-huh. you know, helping come up with the game plan to stop, to stop Danny Woodhead. Um, was there, you know, and obviously, you know, we, we, you know, us Northwest fans, we know our opinions on Xavier Oman versus, versus Danny Woodhead. But, um, you know, was, was there an extra, those weeks in particular, I mean, just in practice with, with the players and I don't know, in the weight room, was there a little bit of extra edge where they, the guys extra motivated to kind of prove a point and, and go out and stop him? I'm going to be honest with you. No, not really. You know, we knew he was a really good back. Um, I've got a funny story, but I mean, I think at that time, um, we really started was really the inauguration into how we play defensive structure now, uh, particularly with our front, you know, at that time, a lot of zone schemes, uh, you know, Danny ran a lot of that stuff and just the way we played our front four was different. And, you know, it wasn't like how other people played it. And so the scenes that were there against other teams weren't there against us. Now, the funny part about the story was there was an early drive here, and I can't remember which of the two games it was, but it was a third down play, and Danny came out of it on an angle route. We were playing a coverage called Tampa, and without getting too far into it, basically our our inside linebacker, Jared Erstbomber, uh, had him man-to-man. And uh, so Jared tried to match as Danny comes out, you know, inside out on the angle, and he cut back up underneath him. He catches the ball and goes in and scores. And, you know, Boswick is always pretty animated. And so, you know, he's yelling and hollering and Jared's coming off the field and he goes, coach, I got two things for you. He goes, first, that guy's really, really fast. Second, we don't need to play Tampa coverage anymore. <laughs> and it just, it totally Boswick just stopped. And, uh, it wasn't very easy to, to get him to stop and not say anything. And from that point on, we didn't play any more Tampa coverage and had a pretty good outing on it. Uh, I remember the Boston Globe years later called Scott uh, because we were the only team that had ever shut Danny Woodhead down in his college career, and it was leading up into one of the Patriots' Super Bowls. So he did a big, big interview with the Boston Globe on how Northwest Missouri State stopped Danny Woodhead. Well, it's interesting, Coach, that you talk about kind of the fronts and, and the way you were playing. Obviously, being the D line coach, and we all know, you know, uh, you know how how highly re- we all regard you as as a defensive coach, a specifically defensive line. Where did that develop? I mean, was that was that something that you developed on over time? Was it kind of you and Scott together? How did the way you ended up, you know? later on and even now coach defensive line, how did that start and how has that kind of developed over time? It really started at Ambrose and that's what, you know, some of what Scott wanted to talk to me about when he brought me in here and, you know, it, the transition didn't happen immediately. Um, but it was more of getting him 
um, bought in to kind of what I was doing and, and the more success we had with it, the more he kind of let it go. And, um, by that point it was just kind of rolling and he had saw, he was able to see, uh, what we were able to do. And, uh, probably is my only claim to fame in the world is that, you know, that was just listening to a lot of people and then kind of putting together and formulating what made sense to me. And I think going back, looking back on it in retrospect, um, I think sometimes in football, people, people adopt philosophies just because people prior to them had success with it. Well, obviously, if you look at me, I've never played defensive line at bay in my life, but I do understand leverage. I do understand, I, I understand where you have leverage advantage and disadvantage. And so some of the things that I was teaching didn't align with the football gods, but it was really effective. And, you know, as it grew and as, you know, I'm constantly tweaking stuff, but it, it, it became a philosophy that's uh, kind of been the hallmark of what we've tried to do here. Well, and you talked about you mentioned that Jared Erspommer story, which is a story that I I had actually heard from him before. So it's that's pretty awesome. Um, so and obviously something now that you know the the defensive players get a lot of feedback on things, and you give those guys a, a lot of responsibility. Is that something that was even at the time? Is that something that that Scott did also? It was. We're Scott and I are a lot different in the sense that. Um, and and I learned a lot from Scott, um, but I, I think it's kind of twofold in in a sense. So you have to remember that 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 football evolves and football changes. And so you know, Scott was more he dabbled in a lot of different things, and I and I learned that from him in the sense that it, it, if you looked at our playbook back when he was the defensive coordinator there was not a blitz in the world that Scott Boswick did not love. It, it, it was just, that was his, his philosophy. Um, mine's different. Um, it's and and part of that has been because of what teams were doing to us. Um, I learned that, you know, multiple formations, multiple personnels, you know, different motions and shifts. And, and when you're a blitz team, you have to you have to be able to match that and you have to get everybody on the same page. And so you can be really successful attacking, um, but you're also going to give up big plays. And so, you know, what what kind of what kind of morphed more of my philosophy was trying to be sound in everything we did and minimize big plays, but we had to be really good up front and be able to pressure the passer without having to blitz. And so it was, it was a learning curve through him that fit me a little bit more, but also it's, it's the, you know, it's the, the evolution of the game, you know, right about the time Scott um, passed, you know, it, the game changed again. So here you come with your, your hurry up offenses, your no huddle, everybody on the line of scrimmage, hockey line changes and it made it that much more difficult to, to do the things that we were doing previously. And so it just kind of fit into more, you know, what I think it takes to be successful. So let's talk about, you know, 
05 obviously was a you know is a, a a happy you know kind of hey underdog story make it to the championship even maybe in 06 you're playing again a, a you know number one grand valley team that you know they were probably favored in that game, but 07, 08, you know, Northwest is favored, especially, you know, think about the ice bowl in 07 against, against Grand Valley and in the, the run in the playoffs in 08. How, how difficult was it or, or was it at all? How did you guys re- reset each year after the disappointments of those national championships to, to do it and, and kind of reload, reset, start over hit reset and, and, and try to make that run again as you know, I know players and things change and, but as a coaching staff, you're, you know, you're always there. You're always kind of thinking about, okay, you know, the, the next season, once that season is over, did that affect you guys? I mean, I obviously didn't seem to, how are you guys able to, to just kind of keep reloading and going again? Okay. So let me go. You, you said something that, that I'll mention to you. So like in advantage, and, and and you mentioned 05, so I'll start there, and then I'll kind of finish with, with your actual question. But, you know, a great example of Scott's genius is in that national championship game in 05. You know, we had been a four-down front, but like I told you, Scott, like multiplicity, we did a lot of different stuff. We got carved up early in that football game, if you remember correctly, with a four-down front. And what saved our bacon was the fact that he had that 30 front up his sleeve and that really changed the football game. So that, that kind of shows you the tip for the town on a lot of ways to win football games and was part of his genius and part of why he was so good at what he did. But, you know, no, it, it wasn't hard. As a matter of fact, it, I shouldn't say it wasn't hard. It's always hard. I mean, anytime, you know, you get that close to the mountain and, and you don't win it and particularly how we lost it, you know, five and oh six, um, you know, makes it difficult to come back, but there's also a hunger. You know what I mean? You're, you're that close to being where you want to be. And so it was just kind of like reload. Um, you know, you came off that 06 season and, and I don't know if you've ever heard this story, but it's famous. Uh, and I don't know if your listeners have ever heard this story. So we had at the time, uh, what we called the stare down. And the stare down was a luncheon that was put on by the Florence Chamber of Commerce. Really nice sit down meal. And, uh, you know, both teams are there, hence why it's called the stare down, uh, because we're trying to exchange pleasantries, but it's really not all that pleasant. So Cullen Finnerty gets up and speaks on behalf of Grand Valley State and uh, says, you know, a lot of congratulatory things about Northwest and he's excited about the game. He's a quarterback. He's used to being, he's used to being in the limelight a lot. Right. So our, our spokesperson that that year was Ben Harness. You ever heard this story? I have not heard this story. Okay. So here you go. Ben Harness gets up and I'm going to have to paraphrase, but it, it was, it was unbelievable. So Ben Harness gets up and, and is also being congratulatory, you know, hey, Grand Valley, we, we respect the heck out of you. Played a real tough game against you. You know, you're the team to beat in Division Two. you know, blah, 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 blah. And he's reading, and then all of a sudden he looks up and he says, but he goes, we've been waiting for this game for 365 days. We should have beat you in 2005 you better have your chin straps buckled up and your mouthpieces in because we're coming. 
mic drop. And and it was said like that. He's like, and I'll add some more things that I can. We hate you. We respect you. We hate you. We can't wait to play you. We've been waiting every day that we've been on the practice field, every day that we've been in the weight room. Everything we've done is to get us back to this football game, and we can't wait to play you. And there is just a hush <laughs> on both sides. Nobody said a freaking word. The next thing that happened is both sides gave him a standing ovation as he walked off the stage. And that was the end of the luncheon. Wow. So yeah, there was a lot of mutual respect, but I mean, that's what I'm talking about leading into 07 and 08. That was it. You know, understand our, our kids came back here in January and they were like, bull crap. We're not going to be denied. And, and each one of those years, 07, 08, and then finally in 09, um, where we, where we got it done. Well, and I mean, no nine, I mean, you know, there's, there's so many great moments really in all those seasons, but specifically that one, um, you know, you think the Tyler Roach blocked extra point that, you know, may, maybe, you know, maybe the championship doesn't happen if that doesn't happen, you know, so the game's certainly right. going to overtime anyway. Um, and obviously the, the craziness in the, in the championship game of, of uh-huh. great first half and the, you know, the, the quote unquote, I'm doing air quotes here, fumble at the end of the, uh, end of the first half and the comeback by Grand Valley in the, in the second half. I mean, what was, what goes through your mind when the whistle blows in December 12th, 2009, and you guys are, are national champions? <laughs> A lot. I mean, I can tell you the feel in that game. Um, we had them beat. I mean, we were, we were all over them and that fumble, you know, and, and football's a, a fickle game in the sense that when momentum shifts, it's hard to get it back. And, you know, anybody that's followed Bearcat football in that time period understands that we were in that situation a lot in the national championships, right? You know, we were, we were ahead and then, you know, you get to the second half and stuff starts going bad and, you know, you could you could gain a sense that, um, oh Lord, here we go again, and you know that that fourth down play with Jake Soy and our best against their best, and we weren't going to run the football, and we were going to get it to one on one, and when he caught that pass, um, we just felt like we were going to win the football game, and uh, it was it was the one of the best moments of my life. It was, and not because, not because I won a national championship. I wasn't even thinking about that, but watching those kids that were still here that finally, after all those years were able to get to the top of the mountain. I, I, I remember miles Burnside's holding that trophy above his head. And I thought he was going to, he was going to crush it. It was like he was choking that trophy over the top of his head. And, you know, to watch guys like, you know, Tyler Roach and, and, and those kids that, that I'd seen so much blood, sweat, and tears, you know, pour out every day at this place. And to finally be in that moment was pretty cool. Well, that's, you know, I'm jumping around all over the place here, but let's go back to the Tyler Roach extra point. Cause you were coaching special teams at the time, right? 
Uh-huh. Is that right? Okay. So, so, I mean, obviously that, you know, has been the calling card for the Bearcat special teams for years and years, blocking kicks and things like that was mm-hmm. in a situation like that. Is that just a guy making a play? Can you, is that even something you can scheme? I'm just curious. We, what we, what we try to do here is, is a lot of people try and come off the edge and, and there have been years where we've had guys that can do that, but depending on the timing of the kick, in the spacing of the field goal PAT team, something's got to go wrong in order for you to get it, unless you just have a truly elite edge player. So where it comes to is it's creating, it's creating movement on the interior, which is where we've been able to do it. And in essence, it's a triple team on the guard, but you have to have enough leverage and stay on your feet. So you have to have great pads. You have to be able to get the guard on his heels. And then you got to be able to get your hands up. And that's what we've kind of perfected over the years or become pretty good at. And um, that was the play. Um, I'll give you another special teams play, though. They busted a punt loose. And Dane Wardenberg um, is the one that made the tackle on it that also saved the game. And, and so there are so many little moments you know, when you, when you start looking back and it's what, it's what all the fans forget, you know, and, and I can take you through the years um, and I'm probably going to butcher them a little bit, but, you know, do you remember the playoff game when we're here against Pitt state and we're up big at half and they come all the way back and Joel Osborne throws a, a pass to Kendall Wright mm-hmm. on almost down slipped the sack a, to throw the fourth yeah. down pass. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know, it, 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 there's that fine of a line between getting to the destination and not, you know, the same against central Washington. Great story about the central Washington game. Um, you know, hopefully coach T is okay with me telling it. I've never seen coach T is so mad in all my life as he was at halftime of that game. And, um, you know, it's probably, and I won't say the word, but it's probably the only time I've ever heard him curse in a halftime speech. And, you know, we were down at half and hadn't played very well. And I just remember him saying, you guys think you're great. Um, you haven't done blank. Um, at Northwest Missouri State, 12 wins is average. And we proceeded. And you know how sometimes... You know, you, you got to do what's, what's your personality. I think we all coach to our personality. You know, I align more with Scott. I'm animated. It's, it's who I am, so it's authentic. But there's also a time for someone who's not generally – Coach T was animated, but for Coach T to use a word, uh, the word had power. I mean, you could, you could just sense that we were coming out of that locker room and, and we were, we were going to go get in a fight, whether we won or we lost, we were fixing to go get in a fight. And it was, it was pretty cool. Well, 2010 ends up being his last, you know, Coach T's last season as the head coach at uh, Northwest. Some crazy games, a one-point win at Washburn where they go for two and, and don't make it. Of course, the Todd Adolph walk-off field goal at Central, um, you know, the, the, the comeback against 17 down 17, nothing at halftime against Western at home. Um, yep. Is uh, that Josh was Baker special teams play on that one. Yep. Yeah. Hurdle on the guy. Yep. 
Yep. That was my first game ever being on the sideline of any Bearcat game was that game. So it was a pretty, it was a pretty good one to, uh, <laughs> to be on the sidelines for, but obviously doesn't, you know, in the sub zero temperatures and in, in uh, Duluth, I think it was even the same snowstorm, maybe that the, the, the dome in Minneapolis Collapse. roof collapsed. Yeah. I think that was the yep. same, you know, when, did you hear, or when did you know, when did you hear the news from him or whatever that, that that was it for coach T? It wasn't until after the fact. And if you want some stories about that game, I've got several. Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't until after the fact, uh, we got back here and, uh, Will Wagner at the time had an opportunity to get down to interview for Angelo state. And, uh, he got the Angelo head job, you know, so I'm talking a couple weeks after, and uh, I I went into uh, Will called me and said that uh, he he wanted me to get out and be his defensive coordinator. And you know I was to the point where nothing you know I loved Northwest and I loved being here, but it was never it was never just my final destination. And so I went in and I talked to Coach and I just said, hey, you know Will's Will's called me and wants me to get down and interview for for the job there and um he's basically offered it to me he just wants me to come down and see it so um that's probably what i'm gonna do and he said well rich you might want to hold on and i kind of looked at him and he goes um i'm gonna retire and they're gonna name scott the coach and he goes i have a feeling you're gonna be the defensive coordinator at northwest missouri state so that's how i heard Wow. Well, tell let's talk about that game. Tell me about the, the Duluth game. So, um, it was super cold. Uh, it had been cold from the time we had gotten up there. And, uh, prior to the game, I, I just give you a couple stories, uh, some funny and some not so funny. Uh, it was, uh, we went to go to pregame that night and, Everybody, everybody knew what the weather was. I mean, the the game time temps with the wind chill was 36 below, and they were talking about you know all day long. They were talking about would they change the game? Would they move the game to the dome? What would they do? Well, the dome collapses. Well, there are two semifinal games on that day. Delta State was playing at home, and they played at one o'clock in the afternoon, and they elect because we were the marquee game to play ours at night and so we went to go have dinner and it was at a I, I can't remember what the restaurant was but the equivalent of the golden corral and we walked in and you know as usually happens you know there's several people there and they're like what are you guys doing um are you a hockey team and you know we're a football team and uh, well where are you playing at the dome and they're like we were like no we're playing here and they looked at us and they go, you're crazy. You know, so people from Duluth were like, this is insane. So we go through pregame and, and if you've ever been to Duluth's campus, I mean, you can see off the hill, Lake Superior and Lake Superior was open. And I, as a guy from upstate New York that grew up on the Great Lakes. So Lake Erie's actually a little further away from me, but we get wind off of Lake Ontario and snow off of Lake Ontario a lot. I knew that, you know, the damp cold was going to be the problem. They had literally lit oil barrels on fire 
underneath the home side stands to try and keep the people warm. In the first half, Jake Soy uh, gets hit over the middle and splits his lip open. He had to have stitches, but he didn't have to have them in the first half because by the time he got to the sideline, his lip had frozen. Um, it was just miserable playing conditions. Funny story is at the time, the big deal was to put Vaseline on. Well, Scott never did anything halfway, so in the pregame, I walked into the bathroom to use the, the restroom. <laughs> Scott has Vaseline all over his face, and I don't mean on, it's caked on his face. <laughs> I'm just laughing. I'm like, Vasek, what are you doing? He's like, shut up, right? What have the players told me this works? <laughs> and I go, Vasek, you're glistening. And he's like, you shut up. Yeah, I'm using some other words, but uh, yeah, just just a lot of stories. Um, to this day, uh, I won't, uh, I will not listen to the song Sweet Caroline. Um, actually growing up, I never really liked the song because I grew up a New York Yankees fan and that's obviously a Boston Red Sox fan. So it was never my favorite song, but it was the last game I ever coached with Scott with. And when that quarterback for Duluth, um, got out of that play on fourth down and scored, that was the song that was played. So when the band director, Katie, when I became the head coach here, asked my wife if there's any songs that were off limits, my wife knew that song was off limits. So that's that's always a memory of mine as well. So, you know, obviously Coach T retires, Scott gets the job, you know, goes go through spring football, unfortunately passes before he can coach. Talk about, <clears throat> like, you and A.D., I mean, and I've heard you talk about it before, how you guys really kind of had to, you know, kind of had to lean on each other. How did your relationship change at all going through that? I mean, how, how much did you guys really rely on each other and the other coaches too, to just to get through all of that? Well, I, I can, I remember that day, um, because on icon road, um, I was out in my backyard and I saw the ambulance go by and like going towards campus, you know, from my perspective out my backyard, I can see down on the icon road. And, uh, I didn't think anything of it because of the nursing home that's out off of, uh, out off first street. If you hang a left, I can't remember. Is that one? I can't remember what the 46, isn't it? Um, but at any rate, uh, I was out in my backyard I was, I went to Hy-Vee to go pick something up. I was going to grill. And, you know, so I left. And by the time I got to Hy-Vee, I walked in and, you know, where the Starbucks is now, somebody looked at me and they said, Rich, um, did you hear about Scott? And I said, no. And they said they took him to the hospital. And, so I literally jumped in my truck and drove to the hospital and walked into the waiting room and Sue, Sue was there and, uh, she just said he's gone. And so, um, she said, uh, neither of the kids are there. And she said, Rich, you have to go get Eric and Leah. And so Leah was babysitting for Rory Covert, and I went and picked her up there. 
and Eric was still at the house. He was living in the basement at the time, actually where I lived when I was, when I stayed with Scott and took them to the hospital. And, um, it was just a, a really tough day and turned into a really tough week. You know, I, I've been a lot of places. Um, it was like this place stopped for a couple of days and, uh, we, yes, to answer your question, did have to rely on each other in a whole different way. Um, I can remember that night, um, the old video room, we all sat in a circle in there and, and we just said, we have to do whatever we can do to keep this together. Um, Len Baker was the athletic director at the time and we didn't know what was going to happen. It's, it's June. Um, and we said we can be divisive or we can be together, you know, and it, because AD was a former player here and, uh, you know, had family that played here and his connections to the community. We just decided that if one of us was going after it, that it was going to be him and we were all going to push the support in that direction. And, uh, from that moment forward, we were, we were one team. Well, what, what were those first, you know, couple of years, like 11 and, and 12? I mean, was it, I mean, you're, you're each, you know, kind of, I don't know, forging your own way, I guess, I guess at that point, at least that's how I see it from an outside looking in you, you know, our defensive coordinator, he's, you know, become the head coach. How did that, you know, what were those seasons like? How much did, did you guys learn and grow and how much did that build confidence then going into, you know, what ended up being a national championship in 2013? I, I think a lot, you know, it's, it's, it's easy, you know, people think that it's easy to move chairs. It's not easy, you know, and, um, in retrospect, I have a lot of respect for Adam, you know, because it's, it, I can remember us talking all the time that, you know, the, the toughest part about this job is we can't ever, it, at the time we said this all, this was commonplace is that, how the heck do we do better than what the guys before us did? And so, you know, it, it, you know, Adam was the head coach and the OC and, you know, Mel's not here and Scott's not here. We go into the 11 season and, you know, I was still running Scott's defense at that point. And, you know, it was, it just, that season was a season of gr- big time growth. I think for everybody, you know, everybody's in new roles you know, trying to feel our way through, um, 12 really started to, to forge our philosophies and what we wanted to do. And then 13, it kind of emerged. So it wasn't a, it's, it, it, it takes time. It takes continuity. It takes, um, a, a feeling that, that you believe in what you're doing and, and then forging ahead with it, building confidence. Well, in 13, I mean, you know, everybody, of course, remembers 15 and 16 and, you know, 16, one of the greatest Division Two teams of all time and 15's defense, certainly up there. And, and uh, but going back to 13, I mean, does does that team sometimes get sold short a little bit? Do you think? I do. I, I really do. Um, you know, it was a it was a cool team. Um, it was a it was a team. It, I would. <laughs> When you've been here as long as I have, at least on the defensive side, it's funny because I get calls. There's fights. 
who was the best defense? Well, it was 13, you know, blah, blah, blah. It, no, it was 16. No, it was 15. No, it was, oh, you know, whatever. And it's just, you know, it, all of them are different. It, it's, I try and describe to the media this all the time, but it's, it, you know, the, the outcome is the same, you know, as far as trying to go win a national championship, but it's a completely different puzzle because you got different human beings and the pieces don't fit the same from one year to the next. And, and so it's, it's how well those pieces blend together that, that ultimately create your success. And, um, you know, at that point, you know, defensively we had shifted, became more of an underfront team and, you know, it fit the personnel that we had. And, and so, you know, that's, that was our jobs and, you know, things just kind of came together um, we had struggled by our standards, I guess, a little bit the previous two years, but, uh, you know, we still had a great core group of kids that believed in us. And, uh, yeah, I think in some ways that group was undersold. I, I, you know, that was, the that was the year of the family on the back of the jerseys and, you know, um, down against Lenore Ryan and playing against the triple and didn't play it perfect, but, uh, found out, a, figured out a way to win. Well, and, you know, you talk about the defense guys, of course, like Matt Longanger, Longacre, DJ Nader, the Dixon brothers. Um, but uh-huh. you, you, it's funny, though, you talk about pieces coming together. A guy like Bryant Hummel probably gets forgotten, who was a fullback, <laughs> ends up, right. you know, that that's when you said puzzle pieces fitting together. He's the guy that I thought of, <laughs> of, you yeah. know, making making it fit, making it work. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, he ended up having a huge game in the national championship. You know, he bounced around on offense for his career and, and really couldn't find success there. And, you know, I, you know, big frame kid, it, I asked AD, I was like, hey, you mind if we take him and put him over on the defensive side? And Manny took to it um, immediately and, and turned out having a really good season for us. And he was a vital part of our success. I'll tell you another kid that uh, was like a buck eighty-five when I recruited him. I don't know how many people remember Kevin Arnold. Kevin Arnold was a big part of our success on the defensive line that year. And you know, in terms of fitting the cookie cutter, he sure as heck, you know, didn't fit the cookie cutter for what we did moving forward. But uh, he was a really effective player that uh, you know made a lot of plays for us down the stretch run as well. Well, and you know, 2014 lose a couple of games. In fact, the guys that are sophomores, that'd be the only two losses that they would have <laughs> in their entire entire career. Um, unfortunately, that season ends, you know, with the with the blown fourth quarter lead to Duluth. Was that a was that a big motivator? I mean, we all know the seven and four going into 2015, but did, but did that the way that game ended? You know, typically we're the team, you know, Northwest is the team that does that to other teams. You know, we're not necessarily the, the one that has the fourth quarter lead and loses it. Was that be a big motivator in the off season going into 15? Anytime you fall short of what your goals and expectations are. Yeah. I think it's a motivator. It, um, I think it was a big transition for us defensively um, in terms of that's what, that what is what caused the transformation for us to move to the defense that we're currently in. Um, Matt got hurt in the game. And, you know, when he was in, we were able to play that side just because he was so good. But uh, we changed our entire defense after that game. So I think everybody looks at it introspectively. So the players do, but so do the coaches. And, you know, I, I 
I've always said, and it's an old cliche, but I, I think you do learn a lot more from losing in situations than you do winning. Um, it really forces you to examine all the little things that you do, either well or not well, uh, to try and achieve the outcomes that you want. Well, obviously that 2015 team is a great example of a team just growing, getting better throughout the season. Was there a point that, and I don't know, I know you're in it, so it's maybe it's you have a different perspective than I do, you know, us fans just kind of have the outside looking in, but was there a point when you really felt like that season that you developed into a national championship contender? Uh, it was, again, it was... It, Anytime you win a national championship, and and it's not short of the 16 team for us, I think, but uh, any of the others, whether it's going to the national championship or having a great playoff run or whatever else, there's some luck involved, right? I, I mean, you know, so here's an example of me pulling a page out of Scott Boswick's playbook. So we take a bunch of injuries on the defensive line. We're getting our tails kicked by Central Missouri. And, you know, we end up being in a 30 front and all I did was put us back into what we now call Husker. And a guy by the name of Brock Sherman was playing on level two and we had a call system in place because Colin in the, in the, um, uh, Nebraska Kearney game had, had had that dislocation of his hip, uh, tore the labrum in his hip and, uh, he couldn't play. And we had several other guys that were out. And so Brock was blitzing from every place that you could imagine, but he was just filling in as the fourth guy in the rush. It completely confused him. It was, uh, it was really good for us. It saved us, um, to, to figure out a way to win that game. Our offense executed down the, down the stretch in the second half and we came back and won it. I think that was a big piece of it. The following week, we survived the game here against, uh, UCO. Um, had an interception late in the game that really helped us seal that. And then we started to get healthy. And as we got healthier during the playoffs, it just, it, it allowed us to make a run and, you know, going into the, you know, the shepherd game for the national championship. By that point, we had, we had pretty much forged our, our, our football team and, and felt like uh, we were going to go out and dominate and did. Yeah, I mean, it's got to be one of the most impressive, I think, defensive performances on that stage, um, certainly. Was was there, I mean, was it just you guys were healthy? It was just, it was just a bad matchup for them? Did you see things that um, that you could exploit? I mean, did you feel pretty good about your chances defensively going into that game? Yeah. Yeah, we did. We felt like we matched up real favorably with them. They beat Grand Valley the week before, and there were just some things that we felt like that we could do and and exploit them in in our offense you know i'll I'll tell you that season um and and i can't believe i skated over it um probably the best team that we played that season was not in the national not probably the best team we played that season hands down was in the semifinals and it was west georgia Mm -hmm. those guys were loaded and adam did a tremendous job their defensive front was something else and you know he was really good at poking people um, to get people to play hard. And, man, he was into that offensive line all week. That we weren't going to be able to block him. We weren't going to be able to do this. We weren't going to be able to do that. 
And those kids came out and just battled their tails off for 60 minutes. And we figured out a way to beat them. And, you know, the, the difference in the tape between them and no disrespect to Shepard, but the difference between West Georgia and, and Shepard were night and day. And so when we turned that tape on, we felt pretty good about our matchups on both sides of the ball. Well, I see a lot of similarities between 15 and 16 and to both of those, I think, you know, the, probably the best team we played both of those uh, seasons was in the, was in the semifinal, the West Georgia game. Of course they have the big comeback and then the long George seal touchdown and, and Bryce gets the pick six at the end um, to kind of seal that. Um, but back to the national championship game, the atmosphere. I mean, that's the thing that I remember 15, of course, <laughs> we'll get to 16 in a minute, but, but 15, it was such a beautiful day, packed house. I mean, what was that like coming out of the tunnel and just seeing, you know, Maryville, you know, came an hour and a half South. It was, it was the best atmosphere I've ever coached in hands down, you know, the, for as neat as the arrowhead environment was, um, you know, I can remember, coming out of that tunnel and it being so sunny and and the place was packed and minus maybe 500 people uh they were all wearing green and it was created a huge advantage for us before we ever started the game and uh you know it was just the atmosphere was electric you know there's something about a full stadium that's bowled in you know i'm not a big soccer guy but you can tell that the acoustics the way they set the stadium up is that way for a reason, and that place was rocking, especially when we got rolling early. Well, and obviously then, you know, we talk about 2016, really the, you know, like I said, so many people overall consider that one of the, I think, greatest Division Two teams of all time. It really wasn't a super close game until that Ferris game. Of course, there were a lot of injuries and things. That's this is a, a crazy game. I'm sure you got stories from that one, but, but that – you know, I mean, obviously, I think you know the Bearcats were probably the favorites all all the way in uh, in 2016. How, how was that different? And just talk about how that season kind of unfolded. It was um, we rolled. That was the and I, none of it's easy, but at times it was easy. You know, it was um, we were that was the best football team in totality that I've ever been a part of. We just had a great blend of of kids and. Um, you know, we were all pretty well established as coaches, uh, you know, in our own roles. And so it, it, it all kind of clicked. And, you know, the one thing I tell you is, you know, the, the thing about 15 and 16, you know, and, and I, I try to explain this to people that, you know, just um, kind of try and make everything the same. Um who was the second best team in the MIAA in 15 and 16? Emporia. Correct. In, in totality, where do they normally, and again, no discredit to Emporia. I tell Garen Higgins every opportunity I get, I think he does a phenomenal job with what he, what he has down there. But there was a, a little bit of a, a lull in, in our league at that particular time. You know, it was, it's, it wasn't what it, what, it, you know, Pitt was a little bit down. Washburn was just okay. It, you know, Western had come off of its high in 11 and 12. Hayes hasn't emerged yet. You know, you've got Carney who's hasn't emerged yet. So our league um, kind of set that up a little bit for us. Central was down a little bit. 
so it, it 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 made our injury situation a little better than you know what we've experienced in other years when when the MIAA is super tough and so we got to the playoffs we were relatively healthy and obviously in a division 2 situation where you only have 36 scholarships that plays a big role We'll talk about that Ferris game. I mean, obviously they're a big physical team and, and, you know, I, I don't know how you look at it. I think they were probably the best team that, that Northwest, uh, uh, or at least gave, you know, g- gave us the hardest time that year. I think, you know, that was kind of at the, uh, you know, beginning of their, what we see now with Ferris. Right. Talk, talk about that game. Cause there were, there were a ton of injuries and things, you know, kind of had to get, I'm, I'm sure both sides of the ball. I know AD had to get creative a little bit on offense. No doubt, um, and that there's no probably to it. That was the best team we played all year, and that was a war. And uh, that defensive lineman still playing in the NFL that hit Zimmy and knocked him out of the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had a separated shoulder, and you know, just uh, with what Doyle did, you know, his multiplicity on the offensive side and using parts and um, being creative, both with Jonathan Baker, but but Randy Schmidt was a huge heart of part of that game and also in the national championship because Zim wasn't healthy for that either. Uh, you know, we lost George Steele, you know, uh, we just, we, we lost a lot of pieces and, and, you know, we just, we just held together. I think playing at home is always a huge advantage when you're in the playoffs and, uh, figured out a way to win the thing. Well, and then the snowball, <laughs> the next uh-huh. week about against North Alabama, man, talk about that game and just how, you know, you talk about, we talk about what a beautiful game it was in 15. It couldn't have been more opposite in, uh, in 2016. No doubt about it. Um, I can remember coming out on the field in the pregame and, uh, the, uh, I'm just visiting with the ground crew before we started warmups and I'm looking at them and I said, uh, guys, where's the plow? And they were like, we don't need a plow. And I looked at him again, and I was like, what are you talking about? And they're like, well, we've got blowers. And I go, blowers are not going to take care of this. And they said, well, we've got blowers, and the field is heated. Well, I'm not an overly smart guy, but I grew up in the Northeast my entire life. And if you get warm underneath and really cold on top, it usually has a tendency to make ice. And I, I knew what the field conditions are going to be like from the onset. And so, uh, we, uh, it was, I, I can remember it two times both before the game and, and more so at halftime when I came back out, it was, it was as if somebody took a snow globe because of the way it's bowled in and shook it. And, and that was the visibility. I had a referee one time tell me I got to get back. And I told him when you can tell me where the sideline is, I'll get back. Um, it was, <laughs> It was about as tough as conditions as you could play in. Somehow, um, you know, Dr. Evans, who's a chiropractor here in town, got Kyle Zimmerman good enough that he could actually throw. He had a terrible separation in his shoulder, and he worked his magic on him, so he was able to at least play in the game. But again, Randy Schmidt, you know, the things that we were able to do with him, and then defensively, um, we did a pretty good job of not letting them get going. And uh, we were able to persevere against North Alabama. I always find it interesting. So I played North Alabama several times before they became Division One. They did it one time back here at home. 
you know, they always talk about, well, it gets cold in Alabama too. And they always come out with no sleeves in the first half and all of them got sleeves on for the second <laughs> half. So, uh, you know, well, we're deer hunters and we hunt in the woods and, you know, we're used to this and no, you're not. It's, uh, when you're used to this, then you, you know how to prepare to stay warm and stay comfortable. And, and they obviously did. Yeah. The wind in 08, that poor punter, I, I'm sure he still has nightmares about, well, uh, and, and it, <laughs> about you know, game. when, when it's <laughs> playoff and I'm glad you brought it up, I wasn't going to go back that far, but AJ Milley was the quarterback and you go, uh, <clears throat> They, they lined up, and we were going to, because Coach T told me before the game, he goes, if we win the toss, we defer, okay? If we lose the toss, we're taking the win. And they we lost the toss, but they wanted the ball. And that game was over after the first quarter was over. Mm-hmm. The North Wind and Maryville in the playoffs is never fun to be in. No. Yeah, I saw, I'll remember that game forever. Um, well, obviously, you know, back to 2016, a couple of uh, things that I remember specifically at the end of that game was one, Sean Bain, who was injured, uh, uh, marching out the number six on the sideline, which I was, Mm -hmm. we were sitting right behind the bench there. And then the other was watching the television broadcast and later was just kind of the emotion between you and AD and, uh, you know, Obviously, you know, whether announcements had been made or not, it seems like there was kind of a sense. When, when did you know that that he was leaving and and uh, you know what what were your kind of what were your thoughts whenever he, he told you the news? Well, there was an opportunity for him, you know, it's been enough years now that it's gone by. Um, I feel comfortable telling the story, but there is an opportunity for him in fifteen um, to go interview for some one double A jobs. And, um, you know, he didn't want to do anything that would jeopardize what we were doing, um, in our playoff run. So he basically told everybody, no, I'm not interviewing. And, um, so in 16, um, you know, kind of the same thing happened again. And this time, you know, he, he recognized and he had ambitions to move to the division one level. And so we knew we knew the first week of the playoffs. And so we knew that it would be done. And, um, you know, there were opportunities for people and all that stuff, but we just, you know, kind of like we did after, you know, Scott passed in 2011, we were in a room together and we just said, we're going to talk about this once and then we're not talking about it again till whatever happens and it's over. So when the clock wound down, um, yeah, I knew. And he knew. And so it was just kind of a cool moment because uh, of what all the doubt that there was, you know, going into it um, when we started it in 11. And, you know, it was a good run. It was a good run with great people. um, And, yeah. Well, and, you know, you talked in in your press conference, um, you know, you know, back in after that game, right after that game, pretty much, um, you know, a few day or day, the next day, I don't remember. It was, it was just a, it seems like a couple of days after that, but about, you know, kind of that was a culmination of a dream that was born in, in 95 and 96. What, when did, you know, I assume everything was kind of a whirlwind at some point. When did it kind of sink in to you of, Holy cow! You know I'm I'm the the head coach of this program now. Or or can you even ever stop to <laughs> to take a moment to think about it? 
you know, it, I don't think you really do. Um, it was maybe the press conference. Uh, so I knew the night of the national championship. I mean, it was, it was done. Uh, but, um, I would say probably if there was any time to really pause, it would have been there. But then you get so engulfed with all the things that you have to do that, uh, you know, it, it, it it's, it, it's kind of like winning a football game, right? So in the moment, it's, it's wow. But then the next thought you have is there's so much work that has to be done. And, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of where you shift your mind to. Well, then you, you know, you mentioned the, you know, the core, all of you guys kind of stuck together. How helpful was that you during that transition? Cause obviously you were there, you know, the program, but again, you know, it's not just as easy, you know, like you said earlier with just sliding over, everything definitely changes. Was, was it really helpful to have those guys around? From an administrative standpoint, it was tremendously helpful. Um, you know, it was, it was as far as day-to-day operations, heck yes. Um, but it was a growing, it was, it, it almost started over kind of circa 2011 is that, is that in terms of football, you know, there, there had to be a new order, so to speak, you know, guys were, guys were, had been here, but they had new roles. And so that had, you know, that's the piece of the growing that that's got to happen. Well, you know, obviously it's, uh, you know, it's cer- certainly been a, been a fun run, a, a, you know, a, a crazy ride off all the years. I mean, heck here we are in, in 20, uh, 2023 and, and, uh, you know, since you came back to Northwest in 04, the Bearcats have never missed the playoffs. So that's, uh, that's kind of amazing. You know, as so many guys, obviously you've, you've coached and, and uh, coached with different players. I mean, you know, and obviously players come back and see things. What are you, and, and obviously there's been, you know, changes. I think, you know, probably, you know, one of the crown jewels of, of, of things that you've personally overseen has got to be the locker room. I mean, is there something that you're most proud of when guys come back? Maybe they haven't been back in a number of years to, to show them, you know, how things are, how things look now. It's really not it for me. It's really not the things, uh, and it's never been the things. I, I think what makes this place special is is first and foremost our culture, and and you've already alluded to what I'm most proud of is that you know I don't I don't care where you're at. Um, to we hold the NCAA record for most playoff continuous playoff appearances. And to be able to go year in and year out with all the things that happen in a college football program and to be able to do that for 19 years in a row, I think it's pretty amazing. And it, it reflects on all the way back to what those guys built in 95 and 96 and, uh, you know, what we've been able to teach the way, the way Scott taught me or coach T taught me or coach T taught, you know, Adam to, you know, all the guy, all the assistants that have come through this between Chad and Brandon that have, that have had that and Roberto Davis that's had that and Zach that's had a piece of that and Joel and Charlie, it it just, we all understand what this place is. And, and so to be able to maintain a level of success, 
um, consistently. Um, you look at sports and it doesn't happen very often. So that's what I'm most proud of. Awesome. Well, well coaches, as I always wrap them up, I've got the pick six, just kind of six questions here for you before I let you go. Are, are you ready? Ready. Okay. First question there are, uh, do you have any, are you a superstitious guy? Do you, do you have a, any pregame rituals or anything that, that you do? <laughs> I, I think I know, I know one part That's of that answer. Question. You know the answer to that. <laughs> Uh, so, so you know what do you do specifically before uh... I am the most superstitious person in the world, you know, so I have jackets that are so old. You wouldn't believe it. I've got, I always have a bucket in my pocket. Um, I wear a red hat, you know, ever since Scott died, I was never going to wear the red hat, but when he passed, um, I always wear the red hat on game day. Unless we lose a football game, then I get a new red hat. Um, if we don't play well on defense and I have something particularly on, I think it's different. That's going in the trash can. Yeah. I'm pretty superstitious. So, <laughs> so going back to growing up, obviously giants fan, did you have a favorite player growing up? Heck yes. Harry Carson without exception. And I'm a huge Lawrence Taylor fan, but Harry Carson was uh, the giants. When I was growing up were terrible. Um, my entire childhood, they were awful. And Harry Carson was the leader of that group from the 70s all the way through when they won their first Super Bowl. He is hands down my favorite player of all time. I got a picture with him at the Super Bowl with Dave. Awesome. All right, going back to 95-96, there's, there's a lot more options to eat in Maryville nowadays. What was your favorite place to eat in Maryville in 95-96? In Ooh, I'm going to tell you this, and it's not there anymore. It was a place called Cookies. I don't know and that I've was, ever heard of this place. It was out across from where the Casey's, um, the the Casey's uh, going out towards Mozingo is now. There's a white building there, and there used to be a restaurant called Cookies, and that was my favorite restaurant in town. Interesting. All right. Question four of the pick six. What's your favorite movie? Who? I've got a lot for a lot of different reasons. Um, being a hockey guy, I've always liked Miracle. That happened in Lake Placid in New York. Um, that's always been a favorite of mine and grew up a hockey fan. Um, I'm trying to think of the name, and this is terrible, um, of a movie I really, really liked. His last name was Burleson. He place at Arkansas. I can't think of the name of the movie. It's it's kind of like Rudy on steroids. It's it's just really good. It was all true. Um, always really liked that. Gosh, that the name of the movie is escaping me though. I watched it two weekends ago again. Um, like that movie, and maybe it'll come to me. I'm having an Alzheimer's moment. Uh, classic movies. I like the comedies. So I was a Caddyshack. Stripes, um, Animal House, um, Slapshot, like all those. I was always a big comedy guy. So, but it gave you a couple serious, and and uh, then I like history movies. So, Glory, always really liked that movie. So, probably gave you more info than you wanted. No, that's good. That's good. If uh, question number five of the pick six, if you go to any concert, any any group or artist, dead or alive. Who would you want to see? 
Whoa. Huh. Well, just because I haven't seen him and I wanted to see him and I never got to. Okay. So everybody knows I'm a big Jimmy Buffett fan, but my music, I, I like all genres. I'm, I love Zach Brown. Um, I like, I, I just, I like a lot of different kinds of music. Um, but I'm going to pick one for you just because I want a uh, Bruce Springsteen. I mean, he's a Bruce Springsteen fan, but it would be Tom Petty. Oh, nice. All right. Last question. If you never went into coaching, what do you think Rich Wright would be doing for work? I've never done anything else. <laughs> um, Oh, I'm going to defer you to my retirement job, which is to have a trailer, um, a truck to haul it, um, lawn chairs and umbrellas and boogie boards. And I'd rent them out on the beach someplace. Nice. I like it. All right, coach. That's all I got for you. I, I as always, I, I appreciate your time and it's, uh, it's been a lot of fun. Hey, thanks for having me. Hey, Bearcat fans, this is Mel Churchman, former Bearcat coach. You're listening to Bleeding Green with Matt Daniel. And welcome back here on Bleeding Green. Big thank you to Coach Wright, who finally gets his standalone episode in uh, long-form chat. And I definitely appreciate that. It was a lot of fun for me. Hopefully you enjoyed it as well. Heck, coming up here in a couple weeks, Tony Miles. How about that? Super excited to get him on Bleeding Green here. And and uh, that's that's another good one. I'm telling you, you know, I, I told you I was gonna I was gonna bring it here this off season. There's some more big ones, uh, big episodes in the works and things. And hey, if there's a former Bearcat you would love to hear on this podcast, let me know. Let me know on social media. I'm not gonna put polls or anything out, anything else like that up. But uh, you know, if you have an idea, somebody you'd like to hear, send send the the uh, podcast a, a message on Twitter underscore bleeding underscore green if you're not following do that please encourage others to as well that are fans of the podcast in the facebook group bleeding green uh, podcast you can just find us find us on facebook there and uh throw it a follow hit the you know like it all that good stuff all of that helps this podcast reach more people and, and you're the you're the kind of the ingredient <laughs> you're the straw that stirs the drink when it comes to uh um, to reaching more people and reaching other Bearcat fans and, and as much of Bearcat Nation as possible. And so would would definitely appreciate that. And again, somebody you want to hear, send me a message. I'm always open to suggestions. Listen, I have a list that's like a mile long of of possible guests. So there's no shortage. But uh, but anyway, I, I'm always up for that. So if there's somebody you want to hear um, soon, then I'm always open uh, open to suggestions as well. And, and don't forget about the website, bleedinggreenpodcast.com. It's not really anything new or special going there. It's just kind of a nice, uh, you know, place to to direct folks and and uh, you know a, a good place to check out and bookmark it and and uh, you know check that out as well. And and again, you know, if if whatever arena you listen or app or whatever to this podcast through, if you can leave a review, if you can leave a like anything like that, I would greatly appreciate that as well. Again, it's just about getting 
this podcast a little bit more exposure and uh, and getting it out there more. And I, I certainly appreciate it. Thank you so much for, for being a part of it. And, uh, you know, one thing that a friend of mine told me recently as I get ready to wrap things up here is that, uh, you know, kindness makes a difference. So if you have an opportunity, go out of your way. Be kind to somebody. Sometimes it's just as simple as smiling at somebody, nodding. You know, smiles are contagious. And sometimes somebody's not having a good day. You just smile, say good morning. I don't know, maybe just don't flip them off in traffic. Somebody cuts you off, you know. I mean, that can make the difference. And uh, so anyway, kindness makes a difference. I just wanted to share that with you as well. So that's going to do it for this edition of Bleeding Green, Beers, Burgers, and Bearcat Football. I'm your host, Matt Daniel. Thanks as always. And you know what I'm going to say. Go Bearcats! (laughs) 